0: We've all heard the phrase, love is blind. We put on rose-colored glasses and think we have found the perfect person. Sometimes it takes a broken heart before we can see what was right in front of us all the time. In this case, it took a slew of Texas rednecks, a man so crooked you couldn't tell if he was coming or going, the loss of an eye, and the near loss of life before things became crystal clear for Nancy Howard. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. I'd like to take a moment to thank each and every one of you for listening and for doing all the good things that help this little podcast grow. Your kind comments and support make my day. This case has more twists than a pretzel factory. It also has more characters than the salt on a pretzel. So I'll do my best to keep them straight in your minds. My primary source is a great article by Michael Mooney for D Magazine. I'll also share info at the end of the episode about a good book if you want to read more about this case. Let's get started. Nancy Howard was excited to get her day going on Saturday, August 18, 2012. She headed from her home to the nearby First Baptist Church in Carrollton, Texas. There she would be hosting two tables at a women's tea. Her husband, Frank, had helped her pick out all the supplies she needed and pack them up, This was all done before he left for a business trip a few days earlier. The tea party wasn't the only outing she had that day. In fact, she'd returned to the church for a baptism later that evening. By 7.30, she was tired and hungry. The weather had taken a turn for the worse, and it had begun to rain. So she decided she'd stop at a Taco Bueno drive through for a steak fajita dinner. It could have been the rain or her hunger— Or if she's anything like me, she was preoccupied with her own thoughts while driving, and she didn't notice that a silver Nissan was following her. Nancy, at 53 years old, was a mother of three adult children. She had an empty two-story brick home to return to. Her husband was away on business again, and her adult kids had their own lives, so she planned to sit and relax in front of her TV that evening. When she pulled into her garage, she paused for just a moment before exiting the vehicle just long enough to grab her purse and her dinner. That fleeting moment was long enough for someone to run into her garage and wrap an arm around her neck. The next thing she knew, she had a gun to her head. A young man screamed for her to pass her purse to him, but the words didn't register. Instinctively, she pulled herself out of his hands and turned to face him. Only then did the seriousness of the moment catch up with her. The man in front of her was a stranger, He was a young white man in his 20s and wore a black baseball cap. He had some facial hair, but Nancy's attention was drawn to the shiny silver gun in his hand. "'Give me your purse,' the man repeated. Nancy reached out her arm to hand him the purse, but accidentally handed him the Taco Bueno bag instead. She realized her mistake when she saw the look of anger on his face, so she shoved her purse at him with both hands. She pushed against his chest and caused him to take a step backwards. In response, he lifted the gun and pointed it at her face. The last word she said before she was shot was, Jesus save me. The bullet hit her right above her left eye, then angled downward through her sinus cavity into her throat and settled into her lung. The man ran with her purse out into the rain, dropping the bag of food on his way. Nancy lay unconscious on the cold garage floor, blood pouring out of where her eye used to be. Church had always been an important part of Nancy and her husband Frank's lives. In fact, Frank was the son of a Baptist preacher. His father had performed their marriage ceremony in 1983. At the time, Frank had a deep, gentle voice and piercing eyes. Nancy was his second wife. He'd been married briefly in college. In fact, She'd actually attended his first wedding, but things hadn't worked out with Frank's first wife. Then, a few years later, Frank took notice of Nancy. He admired her voice and her beauty. She had beautiful, violet-blue eyes that some compared to Elizabeth Taylor's. They soon fell in love, and shortly after they were married, their first daughter Ashley was born. Then came two more children, Jay and Brianna. The family eventually moved to the suburbs of Dallas, settling in Carrollton, where they found good schools and a church they liked. Their lives together were comfortable and happy. Frank was working as an accountant and owned a small firm with his business partner. The firm had over 500 clients, which kept them both busy. Nancy called herself a domestic engineer and took over everything in the household. For more than 20 years, she cooked, cleaned, and made sure that Frank and their three young children were well cared for. The kids always got to school on time, and a plethora of after-school activities were well attended. Nancy served on the PTA and volunteered for most of her kids' field trips. On Sundays, Frank and Nancy sang in the church choir and hosted one of the youth programs. Their son Jay would brag that if the doors to First Baptist were open, his parents were probably inside. But after 20 years, no one's marriage is perfect, and Frank and Nancy's wasn't either. Nancy struggled with depression and the chronic pain of fibromyalgia, and Frank had faced and beaten prostate cancer. These physical ailments were, of course, very stressful, but with the support of their family, the couple seemed to come out stronger. They'd always discussed their major business moves together and their large purchases together. They presented a united front to their children and friends. It seemed like only a blink of an eye before Brianna, their youngest, graduated high school and was off to college. They were empty nesters before they were truly ready. Nancy decided to be positive about it and hoped that she and Frank would be able to regrow some of the feelings of closeness they'd lost over the years. Now they'd have time to really talk to each other and do some of the things they used to do as a couple. With this thought in place, it was a bit distressing for her, when in May of 2009, Frank told her he'd be taking on a new client, one that came with more travel time than he'd been used to. Nancy wasn't happy about this, and she was more than a little frustrated that Frank hadn't discussed this with her ahead of time, as they'd always done in the past. Frank reassured her, saying that he would still do his very best to keep her happy. So Nancy steeled herself in resignation, pulled up her big girl panties, pinned a smile to her face, and tried to be supportive of her husband's work efforts. Frank's new client's name was Richard Rayleigh. He had negotiated a contract with the Department of Defense and had made millions of dollars by supplying ice to soldiers in Iraq. His longtime accountant had died, and so Richard needed help bringing more than $30 million from Kuwait to the United States. Frank was excited about this opportunity. He was given his own office space and the use of a private jet. Eventually, he was given the job of chief financial officer. The family was doing better financially than they ever had before. In Texas, they might say, the family was standing in high cotton. With the new money came exciting new adventures. Nancy and her youngest daughter Brianna took a mission trip to Africa the summer before Brianna headed out of state to attend college. The trip was a great experience, but when they arrived home and Frank picked them up at the airport, Nancy knew something was wrong. Frank was rarely emotional, but that day he broke down in tears. He said his emotional turmoil was over the death of a close family friend. Nancy wasn't sure what was going on, but the hairs on the back of her neck were standing up. Something about Frank was different. The amount of travel that Frank took on was far more than he or Nancy anticipated. It seemed like nearly every weekend he was flying somewhere. It was usually Kuwait, Europe, Florida, or California. He communicated by email as best he could, but Nancy felt lost and alone most of the time. Her children were gone, and now it seemed like Frank was too. She wasn't happy with this man, Richard Rayleigh, who came into their lives offering Frank an exciting new job one that seemed to be eroding the foundation of their marriage. On that hot, wet Saturday night, as Nancy lay bleeding on the floor of her garage, her prayers were answered. She eventually regained consciousness, and she made the decision to fight for her life. She needed to call for help. But the man had stolen her purse, and her phone had been inside it. Nancy dragged herself over to her car, army-style, and opened the door— leaving bloody handprints on the exterior. Once inside, she realized she needed the keys in order for the OnStar calling system to work. But the keys were in her purse, too. So she stood, dizzyingly, and stumbled into her house, down a hallway, to the closest phone. Thank goodness she had a landline. In spite of taking a bullet to the head, she was able to give critical details to the 911 dispatcher. When the operator picked up the phone, she heard Nancy's cries. Lord Jesus, help me. Oh, my God, help me. Help me. Nancy said she'd been shot in the head by an intruder in the garage. She was able to give her address and shared that just one person had shot her in the head. A few minutes later, Carrollton police officers arrived at the home on Blue Bonnet Way. As remarkable as it sounds, Nancy managed to open the front door for them. They saw the crime scene was bloody as was Nancy's face. They saw the small bullet hole just above her left eye, a gaping wound where her left eye should have been, and they noted that she was struggling for breath. Her vital signs were slipping as paramedics rushed her to Parkland Hospital in Dallas. Back at the house, investigators could see exactly where she'd moved throughout the house, the blood trail leading from the garage to the hallway to the phone. But... Oddly, the rest of the house seemed untouched. The only thing the burglar took with him was her purse. When police canvassed the neighborhood, no one had seen or heard anything. It was raining, so everyone was inside. There were no witnesses, and they had basically nothing to go on. They wondered if the shooting was part of a pattern of crimes in the area, but it seemed unlikely. It still couldn't be ruled out. Sure, there had been some robberies in the area, but people weren't being robbed at gunpoint for their property. It was at this point police decided to notify Nancy's family. A police officer who belonged to the Howard's Church was able to get word to Nancy's oldest daughter, Ashley. They called to tell her that her mom was in the hospital with a gunshot wound. When Ashley got the call, she felt like this was one of the weirdest phone calls she'd ever received. It couldn't be real. She was confused and then panicked. She knew she had to tell her dad. She struggled, but was finally able to reach him in California with the news. He was in a South Lake Tahoe casino. He was taking a break from gambling when he noticed he'd missed a call from his daughter, so he stepped outside to call her back. That's when he found out that something terrible had happened to his wife. When he heard the news, he seemed to have lost his ability to speak. But after gathering his emotions... He told his daughter he was going to drive to the airport and figure out what to do and how to do it, but it was six o'clock the next morning before Frank could find a plane headed home. When he arrived home in Dallas the morning after his wife was shot, he looked terrible, according to his daughter. They drove to the hospital together, and by the time they got there, he was barely able to walk. They entered Nancy's room in the intensive care unit, where she lay after having the first of many surgeries. She had lost one of her beautiful eyes, but luckily she escaped brain damage. There were tubes, wires, and lines protruding from her body, and there was swelling everywhere. She was a traumatic sight to see, and at one point Frank collapsed to the floor, overwhelmed. While the police were waiting for Nancy to be well enough to answer their questions, they called Frank, hoping he could fill in some of the blanks. After Frank was assured that Nancy would live, Police asked him if he knew anyone who might want to hurt his wife. He said absolutely not. Nancy had a good heart. She was caring and giving. No one would want to hurt her. He wasn't very helpful when it came to the investigation, as he'd been out of town, but police found him to be cooperative, and they learned that he had sent a few texts and emails back and forth with Nancy. In order to help clear his name, they asked for his phone so they could analyze it, which he willingly turned over. Meanwhile, as Nancy lay in the ICU, sedated and surrounded by life-giving machines, the breathing tube was preventing her from speaking, but her daughters could still communicate with her using sign language. She was able to spell words, and their daughter was able to piece together what Nancy was trying to tell them. Just a few days after being shot in the head at close range, she was able to get out of bed, take steps and best of all, the breathing tube was removed. She could tell her story to the investigators. When they finally had a clear description of the killer, they had a place to begin. But their investigation would take a quick, sharp turn when they discovered the first of many twists. Frank's cell phone held some jaw-dropping information. Nancy didn't see the red flags, the warning signs that Frank was betraying her, but it was all there, spelled out on his phone. He wasn't a devoted family man after all. He had found another woman. Her name was Suzanne Leontief, and she was a dental hygienist from Santa Cruz. When they met, she was in her 40s with blonde hair and two kids of her own. Her daughters played softball competitively, and she'd take them to tournaments all over California. While Nancy was overseas with her daughter in Africa, Suzanne and Frank, happened to be sitting at the same table at a casino called Harvey's in Lake Tahoe. Suzanne was taking a break between tournaments, and Frank was enjoying himself after a long day of work. Frank introduced himself to Suzanne, telling her that he was in town on business. They talked for half an hour or so. Suzanne enjoyed the sound of his voice, but after half an hour, she excused herself. Later that same evening, she'd see him again, gambling at another table. She made her way over, and they spent the evening playing the tables together. The next day, there he was again. By the end of the weekend, they'd exchanged phone numbers. Frank called Suzanne to see if she had plans for the next weekend. Suzanne was married, but she was separated and working on her divorce. Frank told her that he was married too, but he said it wasn't going well, and he just hadn't been happy, but wasn't miserable either. They spent time talking and texting throughout the week, and the following weekend they made plans to meet up in Reno. There they gambled, talked, and drank in between bouts of sightseeing. Suzanne had booked her own room that weekend, but spent most of her time in Frank's room. They spoke of their significant others, and by the end of the first week together, Frank was speaking consistently about getting a divorce. Over the next few weeks, as Frank did his job, creating holding companies for his boss's fortunes, he would think of Suzanne constantly. He even named three of these holding corporations after Suzanne. One was called SLH, as in Suzanne Leontief Howard, which would be what her name would be if they were to marry. Over the next couple of months, they would meet every few weeks. Frank began supporting her financially, paying for softball tournaments and pitching in for Suzanne's oldest daughter's college. He rented and then bought a $30,000 boat for Suzanne, followed by a $900,000 home in Santa Cruz. If that wasn't enough, he then purchased a Tahoe condo worth almost $400,000. He spent money on her left and right, flying her and her daughters all over the place, often using the private jet, But when he couldn't, he paid for her commercial flights, hotel rooms, and food. They went to several football games in 2010, and then in 2011 he took her to the Super Bowl. Later that year, they went to a Giants game in San Francisco. Immediately after that, Frank took Suzanne and her daughters to spend a week together in the Bahamas. By this time, Suzanne had told her girls that Frank was separated, which simply wasn't true. He was flying her into Dallas, Texas, and staying with her in hotels whenever she came to visit. He'd even started a retirement fund for Suzanne, sending her a check for $500,000, and later a wire transfer for another 200000 This was just after her divorce became official. When she lost her health insurance, he added her to Richard Rayleigh's company payroll. In his private office, he kept a framed photo of Suzanne. She fell hard and fast for Frank. They hardly ever argued, and when they did, it was because Frank hadn't gotten a divorce yet. She wanted to live with him and her girls in Texas, but that wouldn't happen until the divorce was final, and Frank seemed to be dragging his feet. According to Frank, he and Nancy didn't share a bedroom anymore. He had one foot out the door, but there was always something that seemed to get in the way. Maybe it was a child's graduation, a marriage, or an illness— And then, according to Frank, there was Nancy's fragile mental health. She was crazy. Well, at least that was his excuse. The truth was Nancy had no idea what was going on. She trusted Frank. Yes, she felt there was a distance growing between them, and Frank seemed to have a shorter fuse than in the past. But she believed him when he told her that it was the long hours and the stressful traveling he was doing. Maybe this was because Nancy believed that marriage was eternal. According to Frank, over the years she'd made it apparent that she didn't believe in divorce and would have issues with signing divorce papers. Frank had been with Suzanne on the night that Nancy was shot. She had witnessed his reaction when he heard the news, his sobs and tears. She had even driven him to the airport. When the police confronted Frank with their knowledge of his affair, he decided he needed to come clean to his wife and kids. There's never a good time to be caught cheating, so you shouldn't do it. But if you do, don't get caught cheating by the police while your significant other is recovering from a gunshot wound to the head. It isn't a good look. Frank immediately tells his kids and Nancy that he'd been cheating on her. He knew he had to tell her before the police did. He apologized and promised her that he was going to make it right and do whatever he could to fix things. Nancy had never thought of Frank as the cheating type but she admitted that she realized something had changed three years earlier after Frank had taken that job. Three years, he'd been lying and living a double life, one in Texas and one in California. As a preacher's son, he knew better, and he knew what he was doing. Worse, his dirty laundry was now part of a criminal investigation. The police were thorough, and they tried not to focus completely on Frank. They didn't want to miss any evidence so they took a look at the surveillance system at the church. That's when they noticed the silver vehicle that seemed to be following Nancy. She wasn't a random target. Her killer was selective. Police also tracked her cell phone and quickly discovered her purse in a nearby dumpster. There was still money inside, as well as her cell phone and keys. Oddly, her driver's license had been removed and thrown aside. It was the only thing that was taken out of the purse. If the killer didn't want her money, her phone, or her purse, what did he want? It seemed to investigators that the killer pulled her driver's license out of the purse just to make sure Nancy was who the killer hoped she was. It seemed to them that Nancy had a target placed on her head. In due course, a fellow officer came forward to investigators about a routine traffic stop he'd done a month before, one that seemed benign at the time, but now it seemed very significant. The officer had pulled over a white Honda Accord that he believed to be suspicious. He asked the people inside how long they'd been in Carrollton. They explained they'd been trying to find their uncle's house for a few hours. The officer thought it was weird because they'd been driving in circles, and he wondered what was going on. The driver's name was Dustin Hirams, and he was 19 years old. He was also very high on something, probably meth. The two men in the car were a hundred miles from their homes in East Texas. They explained that they'd come to Carrollton to get some money from his uncle, but a few seconds later, he said he was looking for his stepfather. Then he said his stepfather was in jail and he was looking for someone else. He was higher than coconuts. He kept yapping, telling the officers he's looking for someone called John, a friend of the family. Then he blurts out that he's a hitman involved in a plot to kill a Carrollton woman. At the time, the officer thought it sounded like another crazy story from a drug-addled teenager. The officer looked into it briefly, but couldn't make any connections. The two men were booked on minor charges and then released. The arresting officer had the two men's pictures, so they decided they would show the pictures to Nancy. Unfortunately, she wasn't able to identify either one of them from the photo lineups. The police didn't lose hope, though. They kept moving forward with finding these two young men, and as they did, they got a call. As luck would have it, someone at the county jail claimed that they had the inside story on the shooting, and that it could be theirs for a price. Now, this inmate and his friends were characters, ones you might see on Honey Boo Boo or Duck Dynasty, and they were about to enter this investigation like a tornado in a trailer park. The inmate, Billy Johnson, wanted to speak with the investigators about the shooting and suggested it might be a family affair. Billy was a career criminal with a reputation for being mean and scrappy. He liked his rough redneck reputation and bragged to officers about it. Carrollton was a desirable place to live, low crime, beautiful homes, a nice place to raise a family, but Billy came from East Texas, where things weren't nearly so nice. He came from an area where people struggled to get by, and drugs were plentiful. As a regular drug offender, Billy wanted to cut a deal with the investigators. He told them, I'm 49 years old. I've done been to the pen a total of 15 years. I got grandkids. I want to spend the rest of my life with. I want to be free, and I want out this weekend. He told police he knew some things about the shooting, including the identity of the killer. He'd hand it all over to the investigators if they granted him his demands. He then told the officers that the murder-for-hire plot began sometime in 2009. He was lying on the couch in his girlfriend's home when his phone rang. There was a stranger on the line. The man said his name was John and said, I don't know you, but I was told you might be the one to do a job for me. When Billy asked what the job was, the man said, I want you to kill a woman named Nancy Howard. Billy would insist that he never wanted to kill anyone. He just wanted to string the guy along. So Billy agreed to meet John for the first time. When Billy showed up there, there was only one other car there, a gray Lexus. Billy got out of his truck and got into the passenger seat of the man's car. The man passed him $60,000 in cash, along with a photo of Nancy and instructions to make it look like an accident. When Billy returned to East Texas, he spent that money quickly. Everywhere he went, he paid for drinks and dinners with $100 bills, but most of the money was spent on drugs. He and his girlfriend partied for days straight. Their hazy memories were a blur of shopping and meth-fueled sex. Soon Billy was arrested and charged with possession, and whatever cash he had left, the police confiscated. When he bonded out of jail two days later, he called John to tell him he needed more money. They met a short time later, and John passed over another 35000 and this cycle continued for months and then years. Billy had an interesting way of describing how he burned through the cash. He said, I would wipe ass. I went through it the way a kid goes through diapers. Billy, who suddenly seemed to have plenty of money, hired a man named Charlie to be his bodyguard. Charlie would often accompany Billy to pick up large sums of cash from the strange man named John. Then he watched as Billy traded the stacks of money for bags of meth. Billy told Charlie he was a hitman and that his next target was a gang member who'd raped someone's daughter. But then Billy asked Charlie if he wanted to take care of the hit. When Charlie found out the target was really a woman, he declined. As Billy's bodyguard, Charlie listened in on conversations with John, who was always plotting ways to kill Nancy. Once, he said, to make it look like a home burglary, they could set the house on fire afterwards. Then he suggested that Nancy regularly met her friends for lunch at a favorite spot. The hitman could fire an automatic weapon at the group, shooting the first few rounds at Nancy, then spraying bullets around to confuse the authorities. Or maybe they could do it when she went to her book club or her scrapbooking club but whenever they made a plan, something always went wrong. Either Billy's girlfriend, Stacy, slowed them down, or they all got too wasted to leave the hotel room, or they were in jail. This happened so often that this John guy started transferring money instead of delivering it in person. Bill and Stacy didn't have bank accounts, so Billy recruited his family to help. He told them they could keep up to 10 or 20% of anything that went through the accounts. There was $75,000 here, 20000 there. In the end, there were more than $750,000 in wire transfers, in addition to what Billy estimated to be about $1 million in cash and another $1 million dollars in bail bonds. He took nearly $3 million from John. Billy bought cars, trucks, boats, campers, hotel rooms to party in, and drugs galore. He was generous with his money, too, throwing it around like it was nothing, but after two years it was becoming more difficult to put their generous benefactor off. By this time, Billy had close to a dozen people who knew about the murder plot. That included his girlfriend's son, Dustin, and his cousin, Michael, who rode along once when Billy wanted more money. Michael would pretend to be the new hitman, since Billy had failed so many times. This time, John said that Michael could follow Nancy when she went on a trip to San Marco. He'd pay Michael with her $100,000 life insurance policy and give him $5,000 a week for the remainder of his life, if he would just do the job. Billy sat, fuming quietly, because other people were picking from what he considered to be his personal money tree. Soon after that meeting, Billy and Stacy were arrested again. This time, John refused to bail them out. Stacy's son Dustin moved in with Billy's nephew Michael, and this was when Dustin, then 18, tried meth for the first time. It was also when Dustin began contacting John directly. They met up, and John handed over $24,000. This time, the plan was that Dustin would hit Nancy with a bat at the Gaylord Texan Hotel when she attended a Mother of Preschoolers convention. Dustin said sure, but he had no intention to do the job either. He went home, bought some meth, and spent the night sharing it with strangers. At some point that evening, several thousand dollars blew off the hood of his car into a church parking lot, and he didn't bother to pick it up. Within two weeks, the money was gone, and Dustin asked John for more. John said he would leave some cash by the water meter behind the house he owned, and this is when Dustin and a friend drove in circles around Carrollton, high and lost and got stopped by the police, and then blurted out the hitman story. The police didn't believe the story, but Dustin's friend and passenger did. His friend's name was Jason, who went home to his angry wife and told her what he heard and showed her a phone number he'd copied down. It belonged to John. Soon, his girlfriend Stephanie came up with a plan. They would blackmail John. So they called him and told him they knew all about his scheme, and if he didn't pay them, they'd go to the cops. He agreed to meet them and showed up with 30 $100 bills. A couple days later, they asked for $12,000. And a few days after that, he'd wire them another $20,000. Then, strangely, John started calling them. He told Jason he wanted to know if they knew anyone who would be willing to kill this woman. If they did, he'd pay them a $50,000 finder's fee and then $100,000 to the person who did the deed. While John was communicating with Jason and Stephanie, he was also communicating with Michael. On August 14th, Michael Speck reached out to his old cellmate, a man named Michael Lawrence, and sent him $1,000 and told him to come up to East Texas. Once there, Michael Speck explained his plan. He would be the shooter, and Michael Lawrence would be the driver. According to Michael Speck, Michael Lawrence suggested they reverse the roles because Michael Speck had a young son. The following day, on August 17th, the two Michaels drove by Nancy's house and the church. They returned home that evening. The next day, they drove back to Carrollton, went to a Ross store to buy hoodies, caps, and gloves. Then they went to Chili's for some drinks before driving to Nancy's house. While on the way to her house, they saw her driving and began to follow her. They parked and waited while she was at church. Michael Speck even went inside the church to use the restroom, after which they drove back to Chili's for more drinks. Michael Speck knew that Nancy would be home at about 7 o'clock, and just before 7, they returned to the church parking lot. They watched her leave and followed her to the drive-thru at the Taco Bueno, at which point they left before her to beat her home and hid in an alley behind her house. Michael Lawrence then shot Nancy, and Michael Speck pulled the car around to pick him up. They stopped a few blocks away, where they disposed of her purse before heading home. When they got home, Michael Lawrence, who was normally a talker, was abnormally quiet. And later, when asked what was wrong, he cried and told his girlfriend they had murdered someone. He had shot her in the face. His girlfriend was upset, but she still didn't tell police about what happened until January of 2013. And that was only after a friend she had told the story to tipped off the police. She claimed that she was afraid that Michael Lawrence would do the same thing to her that he had done to that woman. Over time, the investigators learned that nearly a dozen people from East Texas knew about the plot to kill Nancy. They were all living large off this rich, old, determined man named John. They even had a picture of him sitting in his car. So, who was this mysterious man? Well, that photo was crystal clear. It was Frank Howard. Full name John Franklin Howard. Sitting in his gray Lexus right next to Billy Johnson, who was sitting on his motorcycle. Only eight days after Nancy was shot, the detectives returned to the scene of the crime with a warrant for Frank's arrest. Nancy was in shock, and so were her kids. They learned in just over a week that not only had Frank cheated on his wife, but he'd also put a hit out on her. It made no sense. His children wanted to believe that their dad wasn't an evil person. There was no way he would hate his wife and kids enough to do that to Nancy. Their friends were just as surprised as Nancy and her kids. They even offered to post Frank's one million bond. And witness after witness at his bond hearing testified to his character and reputation. The prosecutor on the case was impressed by the people from his church, community, and even clients from his work when they came forward with support. He quickly bonded out of jail, but the investigators were convinced that Frank had hired that hit and was responsible for Nancy being shot. It wasn't long before they could prove Frank's affair, and they could prove that he'd paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to a bunch of hillbilly hitmen. Frank Howard would be prosecuted. In the months after Nancy Howard was shot in the face and left for dead, she tried to move on. She divorced Frank and found comfort in the arms of her family and her faith. Every now and then she enjoyed a happy moment, like when her youngest daughter got married. Frank was allowed to walk Brianna down the aisle, which was due to Nancy's big heart. She had requested leniency so that Frank could attend his own daughter's wedding. While there she walked up to him and said, Well, we ended up doing this together after all, didn't we? This, I think, is incredibly impressive. At first, she wanted to believe that Frank would never hurt her, but as the months passed, she had a change of heart. She no longer liked him. She didn't like that he seemed to be able to be more than one person, a Jekyll Hyde character. She said she'd been married to a man named Frank Howard. Frank was how she'd always known him, and she'd always used that name. But then a man named John walked in the door. Frank had morals and integrity. But John was all about himself. She didn't like John. And from that moment forward, that's what she called her ex-husband. Two years after Nancy was shot, the jury would come back with a guilty verdict. John Franklin Howard was guilty on the offense of attempted capital murder. He was given 30 years to life. As for Michael Speck and Michael Lawrence, Speck pled not guilty and agreed to testify against Michael Lawrence in exchange for a lesser sentence. He was ultimately convicted of aggravated assault and was given 12 years in prison. Michael Lawrence pled not guilty, but the jury convicted him of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, and he was given 60 years in prison. That being said, his conviction was overturned in 2017, and he was acquitted of all charges in the retrial the district attorney decided to prosecute him for conspiracy to commit murder, to which he agreed to a plea deal and was sentenced to 10 years in prison in 2021. Oddly, Michael Speck remains behind bars in Jefferson County, Texas, with a projected release date of 2024, while police prison records mention that Lawrence is already out on probation. Now, we're not quite done, because you're probably wondering, where did all this money come from? John Franklin wasn't rich, but he'd spent upwards of $2 million paying Billy and his extended family to kill Nancy, and he spent nearly $2 million on his girlfriend. He simply wasn't bringing in that kind of money. Turns out, he was stealing from his former boss. In 2015, an arbitration panel determined that he had embezzled more than $6 million from his boss between 2009 and 2012. He was ordered to repay that money with interest. In the spring of 2017, Nancy would tell her story in a book called The Shooting of Nancy Howard, The Journey Back to Shore. In it, she says, deep in my heart, I would have loved to have continued being the Beaver Cleaver family. I would have loved to continue being married to Frank because I loved that man with all my heart, and that man loved me at some point. But there was obviously a change in who he was and is. As of April of this year, he remains incarcerated in Huntsville, Texas, but his daughters, Ashley and Brianna, still believe in their father's innocence. It seems that for them, love is still blinding. Thank you so much for listening. As always, there will be pictures to go with this episode on uh, Patreon as well as Facebook and Instagram. Thank you so much to Patreon and monetary supporters. You guys are the absolute best. I can't thank you enough. I'd also like to thank just a couple of people who wrote some very nice reviews recently. Let me start with TMC082, who says, I'm a new listener and I'm hooked. Love the length of the podcast, the content that is covered in that length of time. Also, Sandy's voice as well as her few but well-placed sarcastic comments. As I said, they are so few that they catch me off guard and make me smile. (laughs) Thank you very much. Also, I'd like to thank Lynns the Winds, who says, Keep it up. Excellent podcast, no doubt. Sandy doesn't waste time with an overabundance of batter, banter, nor is the show overinflated with too many ads, which can interrupt the flow of the show. She stays true to form in telling each tale and keeps listeners, me being one of them, continually coming back for more. Highly recommended. Thank you so much. I love those nice reviews, but I love the ones that just say hi to. So please, write a review if you get a chance. To all of you who are still listening, I wish you all fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.